welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. Devin, man, what have you been up to? It sounds like you're having raid issues again. Yet again, I should say. <laughs> Yet again. Yes, uh, I had the unfortunate pleasure of having a Grid Plus fan controller, which due to a recent update, uh, it either works at 100% or doesn't work at all. And uh, for the sake of noise, I had it turned off. And sure enough, my computer seemed to have crashed in some weird way that kept it running while it was crashed. And my hard drives, I believe, probably reached a temperature of about 70 Celsius. It was burning hot. So um, so needless to say, the raid failed. Uh, but in advocacy for backups, I back up to the cloud. And so no data lost, just spending some time doing some recovery stuff. But it's obnoxious nonetheless. And it's definitely not something you want to deal with if you've got clients breathing down your back. So Learn my lesson. I'm done with the RAID 0 for now until I can find some better drives or upgrade to SSDs. So I'm back to a RAID 10, which uh, gives me a little bit of redundancy in case a drive fails. Okay, so you failed to mention before we started talking about this that you were running RAID 0. <laughs> what the heck, man? Yeah. Seriously, do you, do you really need that I much was, out of your I drives? Was working, I was working with RAW. I was, I was editing straight with RAW, and they're mechanical drives. And so with four of them, I can get about 350, 400 megabytes a second. And so... Uh, with raw uh, multiple raws and stuff like that stacked on my timeline, I notice a huge increase, uh, and that helping. Now I'm just going to deal with proxy files until I can find a better hard drive solution. Because uh, with me running a RAID 10, my performance is probably only going to be about 180 to 200 megabytes a second. So now I'm not here to like push any products or anything here, but uh, right now for those of you watching, I've got the crucial M500 series SSD. Probably one of my favorite mid-priced SSDs. This comes in a 960 gig variant. And you can see it has a very attractive price here of $344, <laughs> man. That totally well, well worth the investment as long as you can fit your project into a one terabyte envelope. Hey, hey, or you know what you could do too? Um, you could also look on eBay for Micron. Micron is actually the same brand as Crucial. And on eBay, you can get a one terabyte M550 SSD for about 300. And I've seen the reason why I mention is because not right now, but probably about a month ago, I saw those go on sale for about 260 to buy a one terabyte SSD. That's basically crucial brand, which is a really solid brand. So yeah, might the be other something one, to check out in the future. The other one that's rebranding that particular model is also SanDisk. If you look on Amazon and on eBay, you'll find SanDisk. Ultra 2, I think, is how they have it labeled, and it's a 960-gig drive. Same exact chipset and everything. It's just different firmware from SanDisk as opposed to Crucial. So, And that's about, looks like 30 bucks cheaper. I'm checking right now as I speak to make but sure I'm not... Keep in mind, too, if you go with these rebrandings, while you will usually get the same product and the same performance, rebranding doesn't always guarantee that you'll get the same customer satisfaction if for some reason you need to use their support, such as uh, problems with your drive within that one-year warranty. Well, actually, that's the weird thing about the SanDisk uh, version is the SanDisk version actually provides a three-year warranty instead of a one-year warranty. So SanDisk has gotten a lot better. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's because of their micro SDs going bad on me all the time or what, but uh, I've noticed that um, they probably have the best warranty around, I think, maybe next to Intel or I think, Samsung, um, I think. I think uh, I want to say um, what's the company that just was purchased? Uh, I think uh, AC, OCZ 
when OCZ was purchased yeah, by uh, Toshiba, they brought their warranties up to like three years or five years. So they're pretty uh, respectable as well. <laughs> but um, yeah, SanDisk, uh, not a brand I'm very familiar with as far as SSDs go, but they do sell mm-hmm. a rebranded version for 329 So that's even cheaper than the Crucial version. Um, I've got a couple of M500 drives in my systems floating around the house. Love them. They're great. They're not the super fast, fastest thing in the world, but they're not the super slow, slowest thing in the world. And they do a really good job. Anyway, on that note, <laughs> wait a minute. I got one more thing to discuss before we get on to the news. Yeah. Okay, oh, okay, so, right. and I, I was going to save this for the pick of the week, but uh, I'm going to back up here and just throw it in. You guys sure. might notice now that right behind me is a see-through chair. Um, <laughs> I've been doing massively long editing sessions over the last uh, three or four weeks, uh, 10 hours at a time, eight hours at a time basically taking breaks to go get a drink of water and use the restroom and then back to editing again. And uh, this is co-op editing with a couple of people joining in uh, via uh, Google Hangouts to watch me work and tell me what they want changed and so on. And it's it was getting so bad that my back was killing me uh, in my old office chair. And my old office chair wasn't a slouch. It was a good chair, but it was like... I don't know, one of those $250, $300 chairs that you get from Office Depot or whatever. It, you know, all leather, no well, that, breathability that or anything. It doesn't look like a cheap chair you have now. Oh, no, no. Okay, so um, <laughs> I don't normally invest in stuff like this, but I was uh, talking to a good friend of mine, Matt. Uh, he's an editor I work with on a regular basis. And he was like, listen, man, there are three things you invest money in. He's like, your chair, your bed, and your shoes. And I was like, what? He's like, okay, think about it this way. What are you in the most? And I'm like, well, okay. I can see the shoes in the bed. He's like, and the chair. If you're editing this long, you need to buy a comfortable chair. And so I had it down to either a Herman Miller Aeron chair or this Ergo chair here. And I've got a link to this in the show notes. But this is um, about a $650 chair, so it's very spendy. Uh, probably the most expensive office chair I've, I've owned personally. Yeah, there, there shipping was, on these usually cost 20 bucks or so. Yeah, so and the assembly good. was uh, <laughs> six screws, so really easy to put together. Uh, it's got a breathable back. Um, we've been having extreme heat out here, and the air conditioner hasn't been keeping up, so it's nice for <laughs> that fact. And I, I like how you open with that. Like, that was a feature of the chair. Like, do you notice my see-through chair? Yes. It's number one feature. You could see through it. <laughs> you know, it'd probably help if I didn't wear two shirts, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, it's really comfortable. It's forcing me to sit up in this kind of new position that I haven't done before but i just did a marathon editing session starting at eight this morning until uh, about 12 o'clock or one o'clock today so uh my back doesn't hurt i'm still sitting in this chair talking to Devin it looks right like now good lumbar support yeah yeah it's got like four sections it's pretty wacky um basically where I'm going with this is go out and get a good chair if you can. And uh, there are a couple of, yeah, if if you're an editor, you may not need a chair. Yeah, exactly. If you're going (laughs) to spend a ton of time in the office working on footage all the time or, you know, editing photos or whatever, get a nice chair because man, it makes a a lot of difference. I was having to like better yet. If you're a shooter, invest in shoes like you were saying. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's something I've been investing in for a long time. Nice shoes and a I spent quite a bit of money on my bed as well. But, I mean, <laughs> sleeping on a cheap bed, you know what's sad, though? Yeah. My wife the next day. My wife loves the bed, but I actually kind of prefer the floor because I've gotten used to, like, sleeping on location a lot of times. <laughs> and so now I end up laying on the floor. Anyway, that's another weird story. On <laughs> to the news. The news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. 
Uh, first up here on my list, and uh, we've kind of cobbled together some stuff because it's been a slow news week, is actually some uh, Adobe... 2015 CC updates. Uh, Lightroom, if you didn't know, recently received a dehaze filter. And I hadn't really played around with this very much, but then I started seeing articles posted about this, and I thought we'd kind of stop to talk about it. I know it's photo-related as opposed to video-related, but it's pretty sweet. Look at the difference. Here is the original photo up at the top, and here is the dehazed filter using the new dehazed filter in Lightroom 2015. And it is very, very impressive. I've got a link in the show notes to some other examples, but whatever science and you know <laughs> magic is going on in the background here is, is pretty impressive. It's it's one of those things that I'm sure when some people look at the photo, they're like, ah, oh, that looks a bit like watercolor for me. That doesn't really have a whole lot of definition. But when you consider how demanding of a photo they're giving the example on here, this is a photo that normally if you were pixel peeping inside a Photoshop, you wouldn't be able to tell where a door began and a window ended uh, because there is so much haze on it. So the fact that... Um, the fact that it's able to take these raw photos and pull all this data out and make a really it's one of those that I could see that on a slightly hazy day that's not this extreme with all this fog. Um, this could probably completely recover an image that normally you'd play around with the contrast and try to get in and not be happy with the results. Well, and you look um, at the background, it was able it was actually able to pick out the blues and the reds of the house. You even see a little bit of greens here in the uh, trees. And these are pretty, you know, horrific examples. Like, this is worst-case scenario. Man, this is really doing something amazing. Yeah, it, and it's – it's it, to pull out all that kind of color um, uh, just goes to show you they've got some amazing algorithm in there uh, to know exactly what's going on. I mean, when you really look at the original photo in the way that it was taken, you're, you're missing half the mountain. And then with the dehaze filter, you completely recover not just that mountain but a mountain range behind it. Uh, which is even further in the distance, which there's even more haze with um, on the very bottom photo, DJ. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Let's scroll to the bottom. <laughs> there we go. I'm paying attention today. Yeah, it's you're just, right. That looks really good. Something that's even further away than that. So it's super impressive. And uh, and it, it's definitely one of those that it amazes me because you can even take this and go to back to some of your old photos and apply it to some old photos and see what you end up with. Uh, some that you might have originally thrown away because... Uh, there was just too much fog that day. Now, I am impressed with this particular filter, and Lightroom uh, 6 has been working pretty well for me, but I do have some complaints. Uh, I've mentioned that I've been editing Ooh. quite a bit, and I moved forward to uh, CC 2015 for Premiere and After Effects, and man, has Premiere just been a dog for me lately. Um, it's been giving me weird audio glitches. It's been locking up and freezing in the node editor. So when I'm trying to do like, uh, you know, crossfades or I'm trying to bring down mm -hmm. audio, whenever I use the node feature in the effects pane, it locks up Premiere completely and crashes. And I, I've had probably 15 crashes. And what's worse is when I installed CC 2015, it actually deleted my copy of 2014. So now I have right, to go yeah. back. <laughs> And, uh, and re-download it all and set it up. Uh, yeah, that's uh, probably one of the most annoying things is that they didn't seem to do it if you had, you know, a CS6. And I think even if you went from CC to 2014, it kept it. But if you go to 2014.2 to 15, it does seem to, by default, unless you go into the sub menu and click, hey, I want to keep my copy of 2014 right now. It just wipes it out without exactly telling you what it's going to do, which oh, is yeah. always frustrating. 
these problems you're having with crashes, are they from you upgrading old projects? Or are they from fresh projects you just started working on? That's the thing. They're um, from mostly fresh projects. Uh, one of them that was really serious was a 2014 project that is uh, upgraded to 2015. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the reason why. Um, the issue that I ran into with the, the node adjustments was actually after three hours worth of work, it started crashing all of a sudden. So I ended <laughs> up, I'm completely wiping uh, 2015 off of this machine and going back to 2014. And I'm probably going to wait for the next iteration of updates, which is unfortunate because the color grading stuff that's available in 2015 is really great, is really great man. It's so nice to use. I even, you know, I don't normally find myself changing my pane layout when I'm editing. I, I generally prefer the old uh, um, Premiere 5.5 editing pane layout mm-hmm. where it's got, you know, your clips up here, your effects pane down here, and then your two viewing windows. Yeah. Um, but I've actually been experimenting with the editing layout and the color correction layout and some of the other layouts and, and finding them to be pretty enjoyable to use. I might actually have to sit down and rethink the way I uh, set up my editing interface when I'm uh, working on a big project. But uh, it's just really unfortunate that it's buggy right now. And maybe it's just me. I haven't seen anything or done any major investigation to find out if other people are having audio driver issues or anything else. And it could just be that I have old uh, hardware too, because I still run a a Lexicon Alpha um, audio adapter for my desktop system here. And that's probably, uh, what, a three- or four-year-old USB audio interface, so fairly dated equipment. Yeah. Maybe I'm the the problem here and not Adobe, or maybe Adobe <laughs> just hasn't gotten support for my stuff. Anyway, those are a few issues. Could Devin, be. have you started messing around with uh, 2015 yet? I have, a little bit. Um, I haven't done so much uh, editing lately, but I did get play around with it, mostly just to play around with the color effects and the features and stuff like that. For the most part... I ran into a few problems of stuff getting shifted around when I upgraded, uh, which I feel like shouldn't happen, uh, but it does. And so besides that, I haven't noticed anything that long, but I probably haven't edited it with it for more than an hour at a time. So I haven't really done a proper burn-in test, but I did remember to tell it to save a copy of 2014 because I figured something would be wrong with it, as it is every time they come out with a big revision like this. And we know that the next updates for probably mostly patches, at least we hope, like I, as much as like new features be cool, I would love to for the next one to be you know patching and making a more solid product. That's probably not going to come out for a few months at least because they just came out with this. And seeing as how software is these days with both video games and uh, general software is that they release products that are almost complete uh, just to beat other people to market with a feature set, and then they worry about fixing it after everyone has problems. So. The thing is, it's though, unfortunate, but Adobe doesn't we'll have, have a lot win. of competition. You know, uh, who are they really trying to to beat to market with this stuff? Uh, it, it's uh, really I'm, just like I, it seems like they're dreaming up really cool ideas and then putting them into production. You know, if you're an editor who moves I, to like Flame or to uh, a lot of people are moving over to DaVinci Resolve as their NLE. So. Really. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard, I've seen How quite a few articles. How get around in that thing, man? Like, I've tried to use I, it a bunch, and, like, it's just painful. It's it, like, it's like switching to Final Cut. It's a whole different way of editing, and it takes a while to get used to, and, I, I there's a, too much I love about how Premiere works, especially with, um, its media encoder tools and the workflow and everything else, uh, but working around enough in DaVinci Resolve, I go, I could see using this. Uh, you know, not necessarily would I use it for client files, but I've used it before for this or that, and I've done some light editing in it, and it makes sense. I couldn't see myself seriously using it, but considering that that product is free, 
uh, for the most part. I mean, minus their added features and stuff like that. That does put a bit of pressure on Premiere to make a product that goes above and beyond and works. Now, I know we're kind of off topic here talking about NLEs, but uh, what do you think about Sony's... Uh, uh, shoot, Vegas, excuse me. Because I've messed around with Vegas a few times over the years. I've never bothered to go full hog into it, but I know a lot of um, lower budget filmmakers that think Vegas is just the greatest thing ever. And when I used it in the past, it felt a lot like, uh, remember Sonar, the Cakewalk product, Sonar, the audio yeah. editing, where you know you drew, all the time. you drew a lot of lines and stuff like that, and it was more set up in um, sort of a fader environment where like you, that's what it felt right. like when I was using Vegas. Vegas really had sort of, if you were used to using um, a multi-track audio interface, Vegas felt like that to me. Have you, have you messed around with Vegas at all? Yeah, actually, there was um, probably my first NLE. I mean, I, I think I did use something called Maginex Movie Maker for a Whoa. year or two. But, well, right. Uh, but um, And I think they're still around, too. Every six months, I get like a little flyer from them being like, check out our new version. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's interesting that you say that because as far as I recall, uh, which I'm not a history expert here, but SoundForge, which was originally like you could think of Audacity, was built for working with one waveform in a destructive way. SoundForge got turned into Acid, uh, which I think was generally kind of open sourceness, even though SoundForge was originally Sony or something like that. And then Acid got bought up and Sony took it and turned it into uh, a Sony Vegas, which was all centered around audio. And Sony then added video support after the fact. So I think it was first built as a multi-track audio editor that then turned into a video editor. So it would make sense why you say you get a feeling that it's like kind of built off of faders and this and that. Uh, because that's how I understood that it grew up and became the product that Sony has now. Um, I used it. I actually used it quite a bit. It was one of those things that just weird errors. The way it's like any other editor or video conversion tool that uses FFmpeg or any of these other kind of, not that I'm saying Sony Vegas does, but they, they rely a lot on system codecs and they don't have their own baked in codecs. Uh, like Premiere does for a lot of its codecs. And, yeah, but you uh, still have to file. download Apple's you know <laughs> yeah yeah no i know i know it's not a perfect world because apple you know has license and restrictions and all kinds of stuff but i'm saying for the most part if i dump in h264 and premiere premiere is using its own codec not whatever my system has which if i install a codec pack i probably destroyed so it's one of those that vegas never really worked well for me there was a lot of features there i see where you could take it a lot of ways but it seems like the more complicated you made the project file the more problems you ran into with crashing and stuff i never particularly liked it um, I, I just, I much rather preferred Final Cut 7 because at least that was pretty stable. Even if I found a lot of editing around it, it to be a bit cumbersome just because the shortcut keys didn't make sense to me. I know they make sense to a lot of people. It works for a lot of people, but they didn't for me. So that's what, that's how I kind of ended up over at Premiere, even though, you know, I've done Composer and a few other ones and I played around and everything. Uh, Vegas was one of those that, yeah, I did. And I think I've used it on a few clients and it just kind of became a headache and things kept breaking when I went online people were talking about messing with registry files and crap like that to fix some problems with my project files. It just became insane. It was just one of those things I'm like, this doesn't really feel professional. I know that Sony keeps working on the product. It's, and I know that it's still probably the cheapest, one of the best NLEs you can get for the price. But um, I think Adobe's trying to work on that with their monthly subscription fee, trying to get more people to 
buy into their yeah, expensive software. Yeah, and they've software. done Adobe's done some good things finally uh, by getting their audio portion of their editing up to snuff because that was where yeah. Sony Vegas they had two advantages for a long time. Um, back in the early days of H.264, Sony Vegas was one of the first NLEs to really uh, support that natively, and Premiere was kind of limping along and couldn't handle it. And then also they had SoundForge, which I don't know about the history thing, but I've used SoundForge for years <laughs> and it's still a product. Um, really great. great for uh, really intensive destructive single audio destructive audio editing. Like you can do all kinds of crazy stuff to it. You can stretch stuff and keep the tone the same. You can do, you know, any number of things. And that's where addition has really come to light. And I think that happened after Adobe bought uh, Cool. Was it Cool Edit Pro? Was that the uh, yeah Cool Edit Pro yeah, two point oh? They yeah. bought Cool <laughs> Edit Pro and then they turned it into Audition. And Audition is finally turning into something that's really usable. And that's where I kind of cringe when you uh, when we're talking about using um, you know even a free um, DaVinci as our, our an editor. Yeah. Like moving back and forth between After Effects and Premiere, it, it's just seamless when you're working um, in Creative Cloud, but with any other NLE, you're going to have to basically export whatever files you need, you know, work on it in After Effects, get all your assets mm -hmm. together, generate some kind of proxy or whatever, and then bring it back into your editing session in order to continue to work on it. And you need to make an adjustment like, okay, great. Now render something else out and send it back over and start working on it again. And that happened to me just this morning, actually. I had a an effect that I was working on where, you know, I needed someone to sneeze out some glowing stuff and I got mm -hmm. done with it. And the, the director that was working with me was like, well, Hey, um, I want that sneeze to linger a little bit longer. I was like, well, okay. So I just went to my after effects timeline, drug it out, you know, added two seconds to it and then, uh, mm -hmm. extended the effect for a little bit longer and it showed up in premiere. You know, it wasn't even an issue. Like I didn't have right. to do anything. And it, and that's, Oh. That's really the power. That's power of Adobe software is that ease of use, and it's one of those that, as things shift in the industry, and editors are expected to do more. Editors are expected to audio mix these days. They're expected to color, um, as well as doing visual effects. Even if you're not necessarily doing visual effects with somebody sneezing or lighting somebody on fire, even if you're just doing cleanups, like oh that mic was in the shot or something like that, uh, a lot of editors are expected to fix that stuff these days. And so being proficient in After Effects makes sense. And then if you're using After Effects to clean up this and fix that and maybe tweak, you know, color or put an effect on that, then it just makes so much sense since I'm already here. I should just be using the NLE because the NLE works great unless it's 2015 and it crashes all the time. So, <laughs> Whoa, I see what you did there. <laughs> so those, those are all things to consider. But yeah, that's the number one reason. A lot more and more stuff is like people want to do more with their videos and After Effects allows you to do a lot of that stuff and it's very powerful once you get to know it and then once you're in after effects you're kind of like i don't want to sit here and do proxies and renders all day i want to get the job done so premiere just is the next logical step yeah and the single timeline render where i can just hit enter <laughs> and it like creates uh pre-renders for all of the after effects clips inside of a timeline and then you know i don't have to go to after effects to render stuff out i can Absolutely. just render the entire timeline out Oh my God, it's so nice. Um, <laughs> before we get too far into this, let's move on to right. the next thing. We love exactly. editing. We love our editors. Uh, your choice is your choice. Um, I'm a Premiere guy. It uh, sounds like Devin is too. But if you do use DaVinci, <laughs> I, I would love to hear from you guys. You know, Tell me about your experience, whatever. The other one I'm interested in hearing from users uh, on is uh, actually Blender. You know, I know a lot of people that do stuff in... Uh, 
3D Studio Max and so on. But uh, Blender's an open source, free 3D, you know, uh, rendering program that allows mm-hmm. you to do like all kinds of stuff. The, the smoke generation stuff in there is really cool. There's a bunch of other features. Uh, they've added flame features and so on that and make so it really many attractive. People, uh, but it, so many people have programmed that stuff. Like I remember, it, what five or eight years ago, seeing realistic cloth effects as a free plugin uh, for Blender. You just needed to create your texture, your mesh, and then you applied this like Perl plugin, I think it was, yeah, Perl yeah. or Python or something. And then you had cloth physics that like rivaled what most people would do by hand. And so there's Blender's a great, if, if you're interested in it and you don't want to de- jump into the money yet just to learn the basics, Blender is a great way. That's how I learned to do it. And even though I don't do 3D anymore, I, I love the software. Man, the, the le- learning curve is pretty crazy, though. I tried to dig in <laughs> it's and crazy. it's just like, okay, I'm going to have to block out an entire month and just study this and do nothing but Blender projects in order to get good at this. So I just haven't done it yet. All right, <laughs> back to camera stuff. Moving on down the line, yes, we've cameras. got the Olympus Air. Um, this is a camera I've been kind of excited about and talking about for uh, probably five or six episodes now. Uh, the Air was released in Japan earlier this year. Uh, Japanese uh, language-only menus, so it was a little tough to get around in. Um, it was sh- uh, selling on eBay, but those were the the models imported from Japan. Now it will be released in the United States. Looks like we're looking at a price tag of about two ninety nine. So... That's about $100 less than they were spending in Japan on this guy. And same features. We've got uh, basically the 16-megapixel sensor from all of Olympus's other cameras. It is missing the... Uh, Four, or the three-axis image stabilization built, or excuse me, five-axis image stabilization built into the camera, but it does have 1080p recording. It's basically a phone-operated little can with no type of other interface besides the lens adapter and a sensor. Devin, are you excited about this three ninety-nine or two ninety-nine for a micro four-thirds adaptable camera that works with your phone? A little bit. I'm kind of excited to see where it goes in the future. Because uh, I I just see this product getting smaller and slimmer to the point where you're just carrying lenses in your pocket, yeah. and that counts as carrying your camera around. DJ dreams of that day too. It's one of those that uh, I for as a walk around camera, absolutely. Because to get that kind of quality and the 1080p and everything else, uh, you're getting a whole lot of quality for a very low price. And um, yeah, sure, it's not necessarily as quick or as fast as using a dedicated device like a camera with a screen on it and buttons and everything else but you are you know trading some of that for the convenience of having it in your pocket and then no matter where you are you have a very good camera with you uh because let's face it uh even point and shoot cameras are still a smidge better than your cell phone and dslrs or uh in general are a pretty large step in front of your cell phones in terms of controlling aperture and everything else there's only so much you can do with such a tiny sensor size so i I just love that fact that you could have something super slim in your pocket and it have like a wide angle with you or something like that maybe a telephoto and just for fun just to go out and shoot things uh you know professionally no of course not but i think just for fun this kind of i would like to do almost do a head-to-head shooting with this versus like a Pentax Q7, uh, which is another super small camera where you can keep the camera and all the lenses in your pocket, like yeah. in terms of physical dimensions, just to be like, you know, that to me would be a fair test because this is for walk around. This is for, I just want to have fun. I don't know, man. Photos, I see this as an action camera replacement. You have, really? Yeah, okay. So think about it for a second. Uh, what are we missing with a GoPro? Okay, you have a GoPro and lenses. it's, a, you know, yeah, exactly, lenses. You, you have uh, 4K recording, 1080p recording, blah, 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 frame rates, all that stuff. But 
you don't have any lenses that you can put on there. And if you use something like uh, the rib cage, which is an adapter that allows you to put lenses on there, well, okay, that's great. But now you don't really have any control over any of the regular stuff that you'd want to change. I mean, you sort of have... Shutter, yeah, iris. Exactly. You sort of have white balance settings with the ProTunes uh, tools, but uh, you really, you're kind of like, all that's fly-by-wire and the camera decides whatever it wants. But with this, yeah. you're looking at something that's in the range of like the OM5 and you've got the same sensor in there, so you're going to get at least 1600 ISO low light performance. You're able to slap any micro four-thirds lens on there, so you go get some cheaper primes for this guy, and you have nice, good lenses, a selection, and the whole thing fits into something that's this smaller than a soda can. So now, what do you do? Well, okay, I need like three or four of these cameras placed around set, and they're 299 So 299 that's cheaper than a GoPro. And you have a phone control of these guys. There's uh, already some open source apps uh, coming out for this that allow for audio recording on your phone and so on and so forth to sync it uh, as it goes. So, you know, you do start doing stuff like that. Okay, well, I'll just set like three of these up around the set. Two ninety nine a piece. You know, what have I invested? $900. And I have three cameras that are shooting on micro four thirds lenses uh, with like full control of focus and everything else via a phone. That's that's really sexy. You, you, you know what? You know what? Now that you say that, I'm not thinking necessarily Black Magic. I'm thinking that this is a cheaper version of a Black Magic Micro Cinema camera. Exactly. So GoPro, exactly. Yeah. So, which, which that's a rather expensive camera, and it only shoots ProRes, which means you, you know, you're going to chew up through space and stuff like that. But yeah, a budget kind of like GoPro action cam kind of a thing where you get the full controls you need. You got lens filters, you got zooms if you want them, whatever you need. And it's small light enough that you can put it anywhere. You can even mount it to a helmet. I'm sure if you got creative. Yeah. I don't know if I'd put this, you know, it's still made out of plastic, (laughs) so I wouldn't put this into extreme weather or anything like that. But the size and the price is really attractive. $299. I mean, that's like a, it's not a throwaway camera, but it's definitely in the price range where you can be like, okay, I'll throw two or three of these at some problem. Like I need a bunch of lenses yeah. like placed in a car or something like that. Now you can control these with your phone. So, hey, I want a dash cam and I don't want it to like hit up against the dash. Well, you throw this in there, like gaffer tape it to the dash, shoot something and like move on to something else. And man, it's so small and so light. And then the price, two ninety nine. You're exactly right. When you compare this to uh, Black Magic's offerings, uh you know, they're that's a thousand. Yeah, thousand dollars. So you could buy three of these and have a little bit of money left over for the price of one of those. Now, Olympus is being kind of uh, smart about this, and by smart, I mean they're like giving the shaft to the consumers because this guy has <laughs> the same sensor as the the rest of their camera lineup. I mean, they could have added more frame rates if they wanted. Uh, they're obviously able to do the electronic shutter and get one sixteen thousandth of a second. So, I mean. They are kind of scaling back what's available for this little guy. And to kind of defend their side of things, they are using a micro SD card on this. So, you know, you can't really get major data rates out of that unless you start switching to a higher speed standard. But still, right. 299 man. Now, I want to roll this and contrast and compare this to this you added to the show notes here. And this was that Z cam we were kind of looking at. And I talked about this on an earlier show. Um, I've got actually, I should credit somebody. Somebody sent me this link because they were complaining. I I mentioned on a previous cast that uh, the page was in um, Chinese and I could not read Chinese. Um, It's actually, uh, they've got an English version of the page and I'm bringing it up right now. It's loading extremely slowly. But uh, this guy right here, the Z camera, 
is a 4K capable Micro Four Thirds sensor. Again, we're seven hundred. Yeah, for seven hundred dollars. So this guy does look like it's sort of designed to be tough and rough. Uh, metal casing, single power button, uh, metal flange. Um, you know, my guess. My guess is that this is probably the sensor and firmware and chips that um, DJI Phantom will probably buy for their next uh, quadcopter. Now that they're kind of getting into cameras and they're getting away from just being a mounting platform, I could see this kind of being one you of the solutions. Think they'll go that big offering. though? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, because the thing is, is that the price is right, especially if you probably buy it without the uh, the body. If you're just buying the sensor and the chip that drives it, I mean, you're talking about Bluetooth and Wi-Fi control and everything else. It seems right up their alley that. Um, because DJ, I don't think is at a point where they make their own cameras. I mean, heck even GoPro is just reaching that point to make their own cameras. So I could definitely see this as possibly being, it wouldn't be the next GoPro, uh, but it would definitely probably be the next DJI phantom. I would think. Yeah. So I'm looking at the, the specs here or what I can find of the specs. And this appears to be the same sensor that we're seeing in the, uh, GH4 and the Olympus series cameras, um, I don't know who makes that particular sensor, but it's been popping up in a lot of micro four thirds stuff. It, it, it's probably not as high of a bit rate, though. I'm sure that they're much more relaxed on their. Um, they aren't doing 200 megabit. Yeah. Most of these cameras I see that come out of here, because uh, I've bought a few of the cheap Chinese budget stuff that have kind of the same sensor as uh, bigger brands. They usually have kind of auto bit rates or really low bit rates and stuff like that. So you, you don't always get the same quality, even though it is the same sensor. There's more than just a sensor to a camera, but. In this case, for the price, it's definitely attractive. I want to see what uh, – it's not something I'm going to run out and buy, but it's one of those that I want to see where it's going and what's going to happen to it because that is a really attractive price for a very small package. Okay, so but double the see, price. They don't mention battery or anything. Double the price of the Olympus Air uh, mm-hmm. or this guy. So would you go with the Olympus Air or would you go with this and, and take advantage of the 4K recording capabilities because that appears to be like the major difference between these two? That is the major difference. To be honest, I'd probably go with the Olympus Air because when it comes to it, – it's what my primary camera being 4K would make a lot of sense. There's a lot that I could do with that information, that detail, and that resolution. When it comes to where I put these cameras, action cams and stuff like that, I'm not really going to do a lot of pan and scans or anything like that. I mean, I guess you could maybe argue stabilizing in post. 4K would help with that. But I, in terms of action cams, it's kind of the same GoPro argument. It's like there's a lot more I could do with two shots than I could do with one 4K shot in most cases. Yeah. So if, if I'm attaching cameras to something or I'm putting cameras in places to capture some kind of action or skateboarding or something like that, I'm going to be able to do a lot more with two cameras than I will with one. So I know people always want the latest and greatest and they want the best resolution, but sometimes it makes more sense to uh, get the cheaper camera so you can get more shots. And then when you go to post, you got like three or four shots to work with. Uh, as opposed to just having one really cool looking shot. And there's so much more you can do with that from an artistic editing standpoint than you can with just one. Well, and that's one thing I found with the GH4 is I thought I would shoot a lot of 4K. And I do, but I only shoot 4K because I have the ability to shoot 4K, not because I need 4K for anything. So I end up scaling this down to 50% and just using that for most of the most of the shots. Occasionally, I'll punch in or something like that, you know, if I need to. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, you know, I have it framed the way I want it. So I'm not going to be reframing very much in post. And that's why I haven't been too upset with the Sony a7S is because this guy, in general, you know, 1080p is 
pretty good. I mean, it's good enough yeah. for most things I'm working on. I, I have yet to run into a project where someone was really excited about, uh, you know, 4k acquisition. So it's been fine. I mean, there are occasions where they're like, Hey, look, you know, we need to shoot this on, you know, a red Epic or something like that. And then we rent sure. cameras. But, uh, otherwise, you know, if I'm providing my own gear, you know, I shoot in whatever I want, basically, and you know my delivery is 1080p. It's, so it's not just that. It's not just that. Not all 1080ps are created equal, and part of it is just having a f- few good 1080ps. Uh, is I, I still would argue is better than just having many cameras. I mean, I things still have come shoot a long way on yeah, my just, Canon cameras, and I love. Yeah, it, uh, I had to shoot some fireworks last night. Uh, you know, I didn't have mm-hmm. to, but I, I wanted to. And you know <laughs> okay. what I reached for? Like, I didn't reach for my uh, GH4 because it's lousy in low light. I was like, okay, I need to get a good camera, mm-hmm. and I want to go shoot some uh, stuff. So I got the uh, 135 f2 and the 6D, and that was perfect. Like, I was able to capture these beautiful fireworks going off over trees. You know, everything's lit up pretty well. I would have grabbed the Sony a7S, but battery life, not that great. Right. So, you know, my Canon camera is still my go-to workhorse. But to, and to my to my point, like the Mark II, which really changed a lot and revolutionized so much stuff, um, when you compare something like the GH3 1080p to a Mark II, it blows it out of the water. It's a much more solid 1080p. So that's something to keep in mind, too, is that it's not just the fact that, oh, 1080p is good enough, but if you have a camera that does really good 1080p, whether it's Panasonic, whether it's Sony, whether it's whatever you end up getting or, or end up using, it's as long as it's a good 1080p, that's really all you need. The 4K is nice, but also you can get lazy with the 4K. I, I yes, recently you can. Saw, yes, you can. I, I, I recently saw... Um, uh, really quick here before we go on to other cameras and other gear, I saw a person who was editing. Uh, they shot something for a government video, and I noticed that there was just headroom everywhere, and all the shots were awkward. Like y- usually, there's kind of not that you need to follow rules, but there is kind of an understanding of like, hey, the belly button's usually the bottom of the frame if it's kind of a medium shot or something like that. There's kind of these marks that you normally hit because they look very appealing to the eye, and it was just kind of loose. And so I kind of asked him, like, all these shots seem kind of loose. Is that a design choice, something like that? He goes, no, we shot in 4K. I just gave extra room in case we want to do something, shaky cam or something like that. But then their composition is lazy. Even when they crop in to fix the person in the frame, they didn't take into any consideration how the background composition affects their composition or how other people fit into the frame. And so you can kind of tell when you watch it, it just looks it looks a bit lazy and sloppy because even if it is tightly cut and cropped in, it, it, the composition is always one subject, just one subject, just one subject. And sometimes that's good for a design choice. I'm not saying that there's you know a bad way to make uh, videos, but it's one of those that you can kind of tell this isn't what they are going for, but this is what they ended up doing because they had 4K and they shot with a red and they're just sloppy with their composition. So it's an important thing to consider too is that if you are working with 4K, don't get sloppy about your composition. Okay, but on the other side now... Um, I shot an action scene, a, a fight scene between uh, two people about three months ago, four months ago, and I wanted to do, you know, uh, and actually this is harkening back to Samurai Jack that I was pointing back there, you know, in, <laughs> in the old like uh, Kurosawa films where they do the like, you know, panning across the face is like someone looks dramatic. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to do that, but I didn't have, you know, enough room or enough time to set up a slider and do those types of shots. So all I did was, you know, I shot it a little bit big in 4K 
And then in post, mm-hmm. you know, since the delivery was 1080p, I was able to do these beautiful pan and scans with the shots. And mm-hmm. that is like sort of like that's bad editing work. Like I should have probably done it the right way. But the client was really excited about it. Everything looked awesome. Yeah. And then for the fight scene in general, like uh, because I was shooting at 4K and a little bit uh, on the wide side, I was able to like, you know, cut in on a fist coming into someone's stomach or, you know, oh, shoot, I mm-hmm. didn't shoot this at quite the right angle. And you can see that he air punches him. So I was able to just like shift the whole scene over and take care of that. And for that sort of thing, man, is 4K really nice to work with? You know, that's super enjoyable. But on the other side, I agree with you. Like, it, I find myself just, oh, goes, point the camera yeah. over there and hit record and like, I'll fix it whenever I'm done. You know, don't worry about it. it, it with a grain of salt, it's it's gr- it's a great tool to have. Uh, but, you know, like anything else, don't rely on it. Um, try to do the best that you can. And then, you know, it's like recording a backup audio track or anything else. Set your levels right. Don't rely on your backups. Uh, but, you know, it's a great tool to have if you have it at hand. Yeah, or be concerned when you just hand an audio recorder <laughs> to someone who's never used one before and say, hit record. <laughs> I just talked to an indie filmmaker that was submitting for one of the festivals I review for. And uh, the guy mm-hmm. that was running their sound said he'd been running sound forever. And he didn't realize when they handed him a Tascam DR60D that when you push the button and it flashes, it's not recording. It's just armed. It's just yeah. armed. So he'd <laughs> oh been arming it during non-recording time or during recording times and then recording during off times. So when they got done, all they had was the audio from between shoots, not oh the actual gosh. shoots themselves. And it was horrible. He had to do ADR for the entire short film and it was, uh, it wow. what a nightmare. And like, he's like, so please, you know, be nice on the syncing and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you know, no, whatever. It's cause it's a lower end uh, film festival. But, but keep, yeah also that's a that's a good minder because some people just see that stuff the rule of thumb i is go to whether it's a camera or an audio recorder is there should be a counter somewhere if you're ever going wait this is blinking red what does that mean or this is solid red what does that mean look for a time code i mean sometimes the time code's free running and it's just it's displaying the time as it goes by but most of the time your devices will only count up when they're actually recording something and that's whenever i panic because i have panic attacks too when i'm like wait wait this is a new camera is it recording i don't understand I look for that time code and it usually moves when it's recording. So, <laughs> all right, moving on to another new camera here. That was a great segue. Thanks for throwing that out there. Uh, the Sony <laughs> RX 100 Mark IV. We kind of talked about this off and on. Uh, it is finally out and up for sale. It's shipping right now. And slow mo video is out and available from not just Sony, but actually people who have had their hands on it. Uh, if you check out the show notes, click on the link, you can watch a balloon popped on a glass and see how long it takes for the water to spread out. A uh, thousand frames per second at 1080p. The maximum recording, and there is a trick here, and I didn't read about this until after it hit the market. Apparently, the RX100 and the RX10, the new 4K versions, are only capable of recording that crazy high frame rate for two seconds. So that's it. You only get two seconds, which means two seconds at a thousand frames per second turns into something in the range of 80 seconds, you know, so it's very good. But how do you plan around a two second shot? You know, I mean, that's fairly a uh, short amount of time to, if you're trying to do something in slow motion, do you, do you set it up ahead of time or what? Oh no, we lost Devin. Devin is frozen. Oh, Devin's back. Okay, I was about to wrap up the show. You were gone for so long, man. Really, I'm sorry about that. Uh, we lost internet. Took me a second to uh, get the 4G modem online. So holy crap, you're I on didn't now. have the drivers installed. Ah, uh, no problem, man. Um, so I kind of skimmed through a few things here. I kind of touched on the uh, magic arm. 
Um, we were yeah, talking it's way about... too pricey. It's yeah. good gear, but it's way too pricey. Yeah, I kind of mentioned this. Yeah, it's <laughs> the the one thing about Manfrotto arms, and if you've ever used the Magic Arm, it's totally totally worth it if you need that much weight capacity because the Magic Arm can handle like thirty or forty pounds. Whereas, you know, I mean, if you go buy one of those cheap $20 friction arms, they're like, what, uh, maybe seven pounds, eight pounds on the high side. You probably wouldn't want to put it. Well, but it's yeah. probably more like five. I would hey, put more than five on them. You wouldn't want to put like a 200 to 70 millimeter F2.8 IS lens with your cannon body on there <laughs> and expect it to stay up in the air. Um, right. We were kind of talking about the Sony RX100. I kind of rambled on a little bit while you were gone, but... Uh, <laughs> basically the two second uh, recording time, that's where you dropped out. Uh, what do you think about that mm-hmm. for slow motion? I mean, it, is two seconds enough? Uh, you know what? It's, it, or does that just make it a gimmick? It, it does make it a bit gimmicky, but you got to understand is that it is a thousand and you don't get that from any camera. Um, a thousand FPS. I mean, that's something that normally even, you know, the Sony series or anything like that, you're not going to come across, Unless you're going out and you're getting, uh, what do they call them, phantoms. So it's it's one of those that it's like, I could see it, but it's just very narrow where you would use it. And then that makes it a bit of a gimmick. And what's the price on it? It's like... Uh, the the 100 series is uh, about $900, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's one of those that it's not worth the price that I would own it. Maybe I'd rent it to get a shot where I go, oh, I need a few seconds of slow-mo for this. Uh, but that's hard to work with unless you're specifically doing high-speed applications like you do with the Phantom, because the Phantom, the, it records so fast that you need to limit it to two seconds because it has all this memory in it that it's you know got paralyzed. It, it's crazy the amount of technology and speed that goes into that camera to make it all work at 1,000 frames. So to me, this is just... The quality's great. I looked at the video, and especially for all that water everywhere, it seems like the bit rate is reasonably high. Yeah, not uh, sloppy or soft at all, actually. I was really impressed with their 1080p at 1,000 frames per second. The other thing I wanted to mention, though, and uh, I'll throw this in, and then I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off too much, is 1,000 frames per second is still two seconds. 960 frames per second is two seconds. 480 frames per second is two seconds. 240 frames yeah. per second is two seconds. That's so weird. Like, what? It, you know, it you, can't be a buffer issue because you know the the frame rate or the number of frames drops. Shouldn't you get more time out of it? Like, shouldn't it go up as you get down to like 240 frames per second? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's one of those where it's, if they did allow longer time, then I'd be like, I could see using this in for slow mo applications because. Uh, most of the time you don't need a thousand thousand looks really cool and you can actually see the rubber of the water balloon, uh, you know, rippling away, uh, which that is, a, that happens very quickly. So you, you do get a lot for it, but I would love to see at 480 getting four or five seconds out of it. And then it'd be much more usable, even if it is kind of a niche where it's like, you want to do macro photography in high speed, which is a, a style thing. You know, you, you see him use it a lot with this or that. Um, it, it's one of those that, I wouldn't grab the camera all the time just for doing that, but I could see for certain music videos and Oh man, he froze. Okay. Well, this show is turning into one of those shows. Uh, it is right after 4th of July, so we are a little bit rusty. We've all been out uh, having a good time and whatnot. Um, I've got one last thing since Devin's locked up again, and that is this uh, viewfinder. Um and I don't actually know enough about it to talk about it because Devin is the man on this one. So on that note, guys, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this show up. Uh, we've made it 52 minutes, and we've kind of rambled all over the place 
this episode. Uh, it's been great. Thanks for everybody coming out and watching. And uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter. Always make sure to check out dslrfilmnoob.com for the latest stuff. Uh, Devin, you can find him on impulsemedia.tv, so be sure to check that out. He's doing reviews, and he's got his own projects up there. As always, guys, thanks for watching, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs>